Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce cost and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com strange. netsuite.com strange. netsuite.com strange. I'm Laura Norton, and this is One Strange Thing, the show where we search the nation's news archives for stories that can't quite be explained. If you've watched the news lately, you might have seen a lot of talk about the skies. Or, more specifically, what unidentifiable objects have or have not been seen in them. The story we're interested in today is one that has, at least officially, been closed. So it's not likely to show up in any declassified reports. And, strangers, that's a bit of a shame because this one's a real wild ride. It all started in Ohio in the spring of 1966. To be exact, on April 17th at about 5 a.m., Portage County Sheriff Deputies Dale Spar and Barney Neff were on patrol that early morning, cruising a stretch of US-224 in eastern Ohio. Per the Akron Beacon Journal, the two deputies were just a little ways outside Randolph Township. That's when their radio crackled with a message from dispatch. A call had come in from a resident who'd seen something strange. A bright object as big as a house in the night sky. It may go without saying that the deputies didn't take this very seriously. At least, not at first. They were probably used to all manner of early morning oddities, but... According to the Cincinnati Inquirer, they had spotted something that piqued their interest. A vehicle stopped on the shoulder of the highway. It was a red and white Ford, a 1959 model, and it was seemingly abandoned. And there was more. When Dale Spar got out to investigate, he noticed what was painted on its side. A strange symbol, a triangle paired with a lightning bolt, and the following words... Seven Steps to Hell. And, per the Inquirer, the car was absolutely, quote, filled with walkie-talkies and radios. Now, what kind of shady business could this possibly be? Unfortunately, Dale Spar and Barney Neff never got the chance to find out. Remember that house-sized object, all bright in the night sky? 
the one they dismissed as early morning nonsense, it chose that exact moment to make its appearance. Per the Akron Beacon Journal, the thing seemed to rise straight out of the tree line nearby. Deputy Dale Spar, the senior officer of the pair, he squinted up. The Akron Beacon Journal would eventually describe what Dale saw as a saucer made of, quote, brightly lit, highly polished metal. Dale later told the journal, it was like looking at a welder. Different papers offered various estimates on its size, but 45 to 50 feet across and 20 to 25 feet high seems to be the range. Dale Spar would eventually offer estimations of elevation and speed too, and he knew his stuff in that department. Per the Times recorder, he'd been an Air Force gunner during the Korean War. But at that moment, standing on US-224 with his partner Barney Neff, he couldn't do much of anything, literally. As light from the craft washed over him, Dale found that he could not move an inch. As the Cincinnati Inquirer told it, Dale and Barney were both rooted in place, bathed in purplish light and a pleasantly warm sensation. At the same time, the saucer rose 50 feet, then 100. Dale told reporters that he thought about trying to make it back to their patrol car, number 13, but felt a strange, intrusive thought pushing back, telling him not to. The saucer rose even higher, to about 150 feet, and it began to coast away, eastward, looking all the world like the head of a silver flashlight with a jutting antenna. Dale told the Akron Beacon Journal that a strange sound accompanied the ship's departure, a deep electrical thrum. And then, per the Cincinnati Inquirer, the grip on Dale and Barney, it suddenly vanished. They radioed into dispatch. We can only imagine how the discussion back at the office went because they received a startling response. The deputy on call told Dale and Barney to quote, shoot it. But Dale got that strange feeling again, like when he'd wanted to go back to the car, like he shouldn't follow his impulse. Neither he nor Barney drew their guns. So, he told the Inquirer, their sergeant got on the radio and gave them an alternative. Chase it. That, listeners, they could do. As more calls flooded the sheriff's office, indeed, there would be hundreds of sightings that night. The deputy's tires screeched onto Route 224. How does one chase something in the sky from the ground? Not very easily, it turns out. It would take Dale Spar and Barney Neff 85 miles to learn that lesson. Per the news recorder, they estimated the saucer reached a height of 1,500 feet, and they clocked it at speeds of 85 to 100 miles an hour. But it wasn't a straight shot. The craft wasn't idly floating in the air. It was on the move. And it wasn't impeded by silly things like bridges and dead ends and forests. It went where it pleased. As Dale and Barney neared Pennsylvania, a patrol officer from Ohio, Wayne Houston, joined the fray. He reportedly saw something especially bizarre. Houston told the New Philadelphia Daily Times, quote, It was a funny thing, but when the object got too far ahead of us, it appeared to slow down and wait. 
He said that at one point, it very clearly stopped and waited when the officers took a wrong turn. At this point in the chase, nearly 50 minutes had passed since Dale and Barney first laid eyes on the hovering craft. They'd been in constant communication with Deputy Bob Wilson back at the Portage County Sheriff's Office and with other officers over their radios. Deputy Wilson, who was running Portage's dispatch, told the Daily Times that a total of six or seven police departments would eventually report a flying object. This included Manaway, Ohio, where, according to the Sandusky Register, the chief himself, George Bugert, snapped a picture of, quote, something that looked like two table saucers put together. At one point, Dale and Barney even heard what they recognized to be Air Force radio chatter over their own communication channel. Per the Beaver County Times, they reported this to dispatch, saying that they observed, quote, three fighter jets in pursuit of the aircraft. The great chase finally ended for Dale Spar and Barney Neff when, after approximately 85 miles, their patrol car ran out of gas. As for the saucer, it hovered in place, high in the sky. It seemed to know that its foes, or maybe as far as it knew, its playmates, were out of juice. The craft whirred into action, shooting straight up into the sky until it disappeared from sight. It had been quite a morning, but it was nothing compared to the spring the deputies from Portage County would face. The Portage County Sheriff's Office quickly developed a code name for discussing the saucer over radio. They'd use Dale's middle name, Floyd, so townsfolk wouldn't listen in and follow them. But they couldn't plan for every emergency. It seems that when an unexplained flying object was reported in 1966, the U.S. Air Force generally dispatched a very grumpy man named Major Hector Quintanilla, a.k.a. the director of the infamous Project Blue Book. For those among you who are not students of the extraterrestrial, per the Air Force's own records, Project Blue Book, which was housed at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, ran from 1947 until 1969. Their mission was to investigate reports of unusual flying objects and to at least attempt to determine their origin. In practice, though, it seems their primary purpose may have been to disprove the notion of otherworldly visitors. So when Major Hector Quintanilla rode into Portage County in April of 1966, it's probably safe to say that he wasn't entering the situation with a totally open mind. The Beaver County Times spoke with Brian Seach, co-founder of the Center for Unexplained Events. He described the now infamous interview between Major Hector Quintanilla and Dale and Barney as rather, quote, terse. They seemed to be at odds from the very beginning. According to Dale and Barney's later interview with NICAP, Major Quintanilla suggested that, perhaps, they'd been following, oh, a satellite. In fact, that picture taken by the chief over in Manaway looked just like a satellite. Dale's response was that the size of the thing made that unlikely, and why was it stopping, starting, and turning around? At that point, Quintanilla suggested that they could have mistaken the planet Venus for a spaceship. We assume the conversation devolved from there. 
It was probably not a surprise then that the official word on the matter was soon announced. Per the Akron Beacon Journal, quote, the U.S. Air Force declared that the deputies had mistaken Venus for a flying saucer. And actually, the media clarified, the deputies had also chased a satellite for a little while. Then they'd started chasing Venus. A common mistake. Really, it could happen to anyone. It was an awkward few weeks in Portage County, Ohio. Eventually, most of the officers involved backed off the story. It wasn't worth the trouble, the harassment. H. Wayne Houston, the patrolman who'd met them at the state border, left the force entirely and moved across the country to Seattle. He told the Cincinnati Inquirer, Sure, I quit because of that thing. People laughed at me, and there was pressure. You couldn't put your finger on it, but it was there. The city officials didn't like police officers chasing flying saucers. Barney Neff certainly didn't want to talk about it. His wife, Jacqueline Neff, would later tell the Cincinnati Inquirer, I hope I never see him like he was after that chase. He was real white, almost in a state of shock. It was awful. After the official ruling came, Barney didn't speak to reporters anymore. The same was not true for Dale. According to the Akron Beacon Journal, he wasn't willing to back down. He told them, I'll go to my grave before I change my story. Dale seemed agitated. He couldn't sleep. He was often absent from home. And then, later in the summer, though the 1966 news media danced around the nastier details, Dale Spar was arrested for domestic violence, and his wife, Denise, filed for divorce. According to the Cincinnati Inquirer, she said, Dale is a lost soul. Everything is finished for us. That same Inquirer article covered Dale's continuing fall from grace in excruciating detail. He, quote, turned in his badge and was soon living out of cheap motels, working odd jobs where he could pick them up and accruing child support payments he couldn't afford. He was in legal trouble over a, quote, 50-cent parking ticket. By October of 1966, he'd, quote, lost 40 pounds. He was living on one bowl of cereal and a sandwich each day. Dale told reporter John DeGroote, if I could change all that I'd done in my life, I would change just one thing, and that would be the night we chased that damn thing, that saucer. This story ran as a multi-page spread, and the sympathy mail poured in. Despite the way he treated his wife, people felt sorry for Dale. Children sent him dollar bills. There was a warm follow-up column just a few weeks later, showing a stunned Dale Spar surrounded by fan mail and the headline, People Do Care. The article ran the day after one that deflated that saccharine take. A group of college students in Portage County, Ohio, announced that they'd released a gas-powered, illuminated weather balloon back in April. To be exact, they'd released it in the early morning hours of April 17th. It was yet another explanation for what Dale, Barney, and the rest had seen. As the Akron Beacon Journal reported, the students specifically had done it in hopes of creating a, quote, hoax. But Dale didn't buy this weather balloon explanation either. He told the journal that wind currents weren't strong enough to blow a balloon that far. So, 
Dale Spar might have received fan mail, but he hadn't gotten what he said he wanted. Belief. And then, well, Dale Spar just disappeared for a few years. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, host of The Daily Book Club, a daily podcast where I read wonderful old books one chapter at a time. Simple as that. Whether you want to get engaged and lost in a fascinating story that has stood the test of time, or just relax to a good book, listen to The Daily Book Club to get wrapped up or unwind during your day. We'll read classic stories like Pride and Prejudice, The Enchanted April, The Wind in the Willows, beautiful stories all told from start to finish. And you can even do a real book club. Tune into the Daily Book Club Discord and discuss the readings with other book club listeners. However you want to listen, it's your choice. Subscribe to the Daily Book Club on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else. New episodes every single day. So sit back, relax, and get lost in the Daily Book Club. Have you ever wondered what it feels like to be attacked by an alligator? Or what goes through one's mind as they're stranded in a snowstorm? What Was That Like is the podcast for you. Real people come on every episode to explain the unbelievable situations they've been through. Guests share how they really felt during their most surreal experiences. They tell us what they did the morning before an earthquake, how it feels to win The Price is Right, and all sorts of details that you'd never learn anywhere else. If you're interested in hearing disturbing and inspiring firsthand stories, What Was That Like is the podcast you've been looking for. Every story is thoroughly researched and fact-checked, so you know that even the most unrealistic are someone's reality. Listen to What Was That Like wherever you get your podcasts. A number of retrospective articles popped up now and then, but they had to depend on recycled quotes and rumors because no one could track Dale down. But finally, in 1977, Dale Spar made his return, once again in long-form print. It seems he hadn't completely fallen off the face of the earth. In the article, which was brilliantly titled, Nobody Loves a UFO Chaser, Dale caught writer Bob von Sternberg up on just about everything. What happened after all the encouraging fan mail poured in, full of dollar bills to help Dale back onto his feet? Well, pretty much the opposite of getting on his feet. He'd hurt his back, spent months in the hospital, ended up homeless, and owed so much in back child support and alimony that he thought he'd never dig his way out. He'd tried attending UFO conferences, but in typical fandom fashion, the attendees all wanted to argue with him over the details, as if they themselves had been there. Even with the UFO enthusiasts, Dale couldn't find any real support. So he'd wandered, welding metal in Buffalo, deep sea fishing in Florida. But per the journal, he'd eventually remarried and moved with his new wife back to his hometown in West Virginia. They'd started a cab and ambulance company and settled in, ish. The reporter described them as smoking cigarette after cigarette, drinking cup of coffee after coffee, Dale didn't see his children anymore. His new neighbors in West Virginia had found out that he was the saucer man. Most avoided him. He tried to keep a low profile. 
But he still stood by his story all those years later. He told the journal, What I did was right. I'd make the report again. It's just what happened afterward that was frightening. In fact, the local sheriff in his new town had just dealt with a UFO sighting. Everyone had been talking about it. But as for Dale Spar, he told the Akron Beacon Journal that he hadn't even looked up into the sky when he heard the news. It just wasn't worth it. Dale Spar died in May of 1984, at age 51, without ever receiving confirmation of what he'd seen that early morning in 1966. The Air Force's official report stands as the record of note in this incident, with the dissidents either too quiet or too dead to make much of a difference. And that would be that, listeners. Except for one strange thing. None of the official explanations, the satellite or the planet Venus or the weather balloon, quite work. Now, these are all common explanations for unexplained phenomena, and they're often the answer. But in this particular case, maybe not. Let's start with the satellites. Low Earth orbit satellites orbit the Earth at a minimum of 160 kilometers, which is about 100 miles above the ground. For perspective, an airplane passing overhead is usually 14 kilometers, or roughly 8.5 miles above us. Dale and Barney describe the saucer as beginning at a vertical distance of 50 feet above their heads. How would they have mistaken 50 feet for 528,000 feet? Then there's the planet Venus. Believe it or not, it has tricked many pilots, particularly when the weather conditions create a sort of strobing effect. There's just one problem here. In this case, Dale and Barney and the other officers traveled for over 80 miles. Ever tried to keep the moon in your sights as you wind down the highway only to lose it behind a tree line? Now, imagine doing that at 100 miles an hour you wouldn't be chasing a clear target, and it certainly wouldn't be pausing and then rocketing off in a different direction. But what about the weather balloon? That one is a little trickier. After all, they are bright and can be big, and they sure do go up. According to high-altitude science, weather balloons can travel 25 to 75 miles away from their origin, depending on whether they catch a jet stream, and they can reach altitudes of 24 miles or almost 127,000 feet. So we have height. What about the speed? Could a weather balloon be chased for 85 miles, driving at 100 miles an hour? According to Stratostar, the average controlled weather balloon trip takes about two hours in total, and a balloon should ascend for about 90 minutes before bursting. That's nearly twice as long as the reported sighting of Floyd. But, of course, it could have been a very bad weather balloon. Maybe it burst right when the officer saw it disappear in the sky. We are not meteorologists. We'd be willing to go with that one. Except, the Air Force itself reported that nothing, absolutely nothing, was seen on the radar that night. Wouldn't they have spotted a rogue weather balloon speeding across two states? 
They certainly were checking their records after all, and a clean solution like a weather balloon would have been a nice dunk on those small town cops. But the military settled on weaker solutions. We don't claim to have the answers. We don't even claim to have fully debunked the options. But after hearing this story and keeping up with certain current news, well, let's just say this. We're keeping our eyes fixed squarely on the skies. We hope you'll join us next time for another real-life story from the fine print of America's local papers, from the lives of regular people, just like you and me, except for one strange thing. Oh, and strangers. One Strange Thing is an entirely independent production. To support the show and to hear more of the entirely true and enticingly peculiar, join us over on Patreon. There, you'll get ad-free early releases of our regular episodes, full-length bonus episodes, and plenty of other fun content, all for five bucks a month. We hope you'll check it out. There's a link in the show notes. Stay tuned for a promo from our friend Emily over at Morbidology. We think you'll enjoy her show. Be sure to check it out. Morbidology is a weekly true crime podcast hosted by me, Emily G. Thompson, author of Unsolved Child Murders, Unsolved Murders, Cults Uncovered, and Mysteries Uncovered. 911 emergency. My son shot my husband. I need an ambulance. He's bleeding. Each week on Morbidology, I uncover a new true crime case using investigative research combined with source audio. I just snatched it from her. My son had took it and it's like, I just hit her with it. Morbidology is a victim-focused podcast that mostly covers cases that aren't widely documented in mainstream media. I also like to take an in-depth look at any systemic failures which had a part to play in the crime. Do you know why you're here? For a uh, home invasion gone terribly wrong. Listen to Morbidology across all podcast platforms.